the bar for your happiness should be your actual happiness. And I think people do not know what that is. Hello, welcome to Movie Phone. I mean, this is... Uh, <laughs> You've been trying this joke since like 2020. And I still love it. I loved it then and I love it now. We... <laughs> do, do, we Hello and welcome to the Feminist Present. I am Laura Good. Well, we used... Well, okay. Uh, for those of us just tuning in now, the Feminist Present is the podcast, which is what Laura should have said, that uses the gift of feminism to figure out what happens after divorce, which uh, <laughs> turns out, uh, spoiler alert, to be kind of awesome. So this is something that uh, we're learning Increased today about. Increased happiness. Um, yeah, that's yeah. the joke you have. I have not. Chamber. I have not tried this myself, but yeah. um, I well. will not harsh anyone's mellow. Uh, <laughs> it's a popular and uh, an apparently um, rewarding path. I am so curious to see what the path of this book is going to be, because I just feel like the, you know, there were so many divorces initiated by the pandemic. And I feel like Liz's publishing yeah, timing yeah. may be just excellent here. But yeah, we are talking to the wonderful Liz Lenz about her bombastic book, This American Ex-Wife, which we loved. And uh, this is Liz's second appearance on the podcast. She, I think it was mid-2020 that she appeared, mid-Derecho. Yeah. 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 To talk about her first book. Oh, no, her second book, Belabored, which was wonderful also. That's right. But yeah, I just love this woman. I would lay down in traffic for her. Oh, please don't. But uh, it, yeah. uh, it, no, it's a terrific book. We had a wonderful conversation. And, and Liz is just such a powerhouse. You know, you, you hopefully have read her other books. You hopefully subscribe to her amazing Substack, Men Yell at Me, mm -hmm. which I read religiously. And it has like really become a big part of my thinking because she has this recurring feature, the dingus of the week. And I really, I, I organize time this way. Like, who, who's this week's dingus? Um, totally. It's, it's totally, really, yeah. It's better it's great, than the agrarian calendar. I like that a lot. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like the lunar calendar was yesterday. We now navigate by <laughs> dinguses. Uh, and it's, you know, there, it turns out there is a never ending supply of uh, dinguses. The heat death of the universe shall be survived by dinguses. I mean, truly. I've noticed another great thing about Liz. She's such a great rabbit hole on the internet, L Y Z L E N Z. She's published lots and lots of essays, and they're so fun to read. But her work has done really well with my students, too, which is interesting because they're in a different mm. age bracket than we are yeah yeah not sort of the the target demographic for insights totally. writing about pregnancy parenthood and divorce yeah totally but she had an essay in the rumpus yeah, i don't want to assume but like <laughs> if you if you've done all all three of those by 22 you've lived you know totally uh, i mean i'm remembering she had an essay in the rumpus a couple of years back called apples on women's work and then she had another essay that she mentions in the book that went really viral and glamour called now that i'm divorced i'm never cooking for a man again which is just a fucking battle cry. I mean, it's just wonderful. I the, It comes up in the conversation that Liz and I have both like very deep Midwestern roots and cooking is a prominent feature of Midwestern culture and it's usually only done by one gender. So anyway, I just, I loved all of this and it's been interesting to see her be appreciated yeah. by younger feminists as well. Why, in my household, there's just no cooking. We're just we're like, <laughs> where's the woman? <laughs> who does, doesn't, doesn't Hung usually do more of the cooking? Like who is the cook in your no. house? Who, so oh what God. do you do? You I order takeout? I would not be sitting here talking to you and I hope you wouldn't mind me saying that. 
Oh, so you do more of the cooking. Is that what you're alleging here? I'm the cook. Interesting. Yeah. I'm the cook. Very interesting. I think he would acknowledge this. I'm having such wicked impulses right now to be like, so Adrian, point by point, how would you, how would you evaluate the division of labor in your marriage? Let's go over this. Let's get hung in here. But that, that's not what this podcast is about. No, he he does, he does a ton. And that's part of why I insist on the cooking. Because I feel like, you know, uh, that's, you know, it comes at a time in the day when you're already exhausted. And I do think that like, if I were to like spring that on him, it really would be deeply unfair. Yeah. It's just things that, you know, I, I can't do during the day that he can. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very, very keen on maintaining that, but that's to say that, you know, because we kind of negotiate those chores, semi-independent of gender norms, it's really fascinating to watch our straight friends figure this totally. out. Totally. And the kind of things that people sort of, nat- the patterns people naturally get into. And, you know, we talked a lot about studied incompetence. That turns out to be something that you can do in the same-sex couple too. There are things in the household I like do not know. And I suspect I've done this by design. I try to, yeah. you know, steer against that as much as I can. But, you know, um, there are sometimes things where you're like, oh my God, I'm not figuring this fucking thing out. I'm sorry. And so, yeah, it was it was very fascinating. I should mention to our listeners that this is, my marriage does not come up much in this Um <laughs> safe from the slings and arrows of this conversation. Liz and Laura were, you know, coming at this from a place where, you know, they had recently lived it, where they, you know, had this deep Midwestern connection that, you know, I, I just, I, I don't share. And if if you hear weird, gross noises, that's because I was like congested as shit when I recorded this. <laughs> so I'm that's the other reason that I'm like not saying much because it's like basically like, I had to blow my nose before I said anything. And, yeah. and uh, so it's not my feminism that, you know, uh, held me back. It's really, um, I, I didn't talk because I was congested. Were you silent yeah. or were you silenced, Adrian? Let's talk about it. By my nose. <laughs> by my nose. I don't know why what you were just saying about the Midwest. My just, sinuses. Yeah. You just made, you just drew me to a truth I've been meditating on for a while. When you were just talking about the Midwest, I was thinking about how in the sort of four quadrants of American geography, the Midwest is actually more like the South culturally than it is like the coasts. And because of that sort of innate conservatism, I think divorce is a different kind of big deal in those cultural theaters. And I think Liz and I experienced the consequences of breaking some of those codes in that way. Um, And that's part of why I feel such deep allegiance to her and to her work is it feels really specific to me Mm -hmm. in that way. I have only the most passive familiarity with the with the upper Midwest, but it does strike me as Midwest nice is a real thing, right? Like the idea that you don't you don't necessarily over verbalize. Yes. Like, you know, I, I've been around a lot of marriages that are quite shouty mm-hmm. and they're often not you know, they're often very functional marriages. Yeah, not it's the just most like toxic it helps one. to shout at each yes. other for yes. a little while. Yeah. And and I could imagine that like, you know, a person who has written a book about their divorce. Right. There's there's a story there about what couldn't be said or what couldn't be articulated. Exactly. And what, That's what I'm pointing didn't at. have a conduit beforehand, yes. right? Like, as opposed to like a 10 page essay, like the fact that you can dedicate a book to this does suggest, right? Like there were things you weren't saying and, and you know, I, not to trade in ugly stereotypes here, but the idea that Midwesterners at times hold back a little bit um, is one that I have encountered. Yes. And I, I mean, given that you're my you know, sort of prime specimen. I can't, point, I can't attest yeah. to that. I feel like you're not, you're not, uh, you know, but then again, you've been coastified, haven't and, you? Yeah. Yes. And no, no one would attest to that more than my, my family in the Midwest. Um, but it's interesting what you say, because 
this is exactly the gap that Liz is speaking into, you know, what we're not supposed to talk about. And I think it's important to face some of some of those ugly stereotypes directly, because I think another one is like another ugly, sad stereotype is like, poor, sad, divorced, miserable woman. She's so miserable. And there's so many books about divorce. Like I've seen submissions pages that are like, literally, we will not read your story about divorce in a way that seems to suggest that divorce is this sort of over-discussed topic. And yet, you know, it's true that Eat, Pray, Love was a bestseller, but I think Eat, Pray, Love was a bestseller because there was other work lacking in that space. Yeah. And I think that this American ex-wife is speaking into that same cultural gap in a way that I think is important and beautiful. Liz points out that, of course, also the other narrative that we have and that we do end up reading a lot of essays about is the wronged wife kind yes. of narrative. Yes, yes. And that's not what this is either. It's, it's no, very this isn't he left me for his secretary, which I think right. is another ugly stereotype. Yeah. It's, it's research assistant. Um, <laughs> always research assistant. Oh my God. You said something that triggered another intellectual land, landmine I've been mulling over. Okay, I mean, David so- Brooks. Yes, I did. Trigger, trigger, <laughs> I did mean to trigger that. Yes. There's so much media attention to administrative bloat in higher education. And I don't doubt that there is some bloat, you know, like I'm not saying that that's a non-issue. But I want to see more research that examines how much of the paid work that universities are now recognizing and compensating used to be done for free by faculty wives and other unpaid female partners. Do you know what I'm saying? I wonder if some of what we're called, I don't know this, I'm not an economic analyst, but like, I wonder if some portion of what we're calling bloat is actually just compensated labor that wasn't compensated before. Interesting. I don't know. Anyway, stay tuned. And then back to your Midwestern point, I would like to do an entire season of us visiting each other's hometowns. And this is going to work oh. out way better for me than it is for you, because then I would get to go to Germany. But I mean, like, no, I want to go. I want to go to the Midwest. Invite let's me, do it. Let's do a proper banquet for each other in our respective hometowns yeah, yeah. and make that a season. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't. I'm I'm trying to picture what my visit would be like, and I don't want to be offensive. But like, would there be a butter sculpture? Well, it depends on the season you would be there, Adrian, and we could plan for okay. there to be a butter sculpture. It's more of an Iowa thing, right? Like, listen, uh, once you get into too. state fairs, the Minnesota Iowa relations get really touchy, and we didn't get into this list oh with God. Liz, the the Minnesota Iowa rivalry, but it is deep. That's and right, it is the Minnesota real, Iowa thing, and it is yeah. deeply, deeply situated in whose state fair is better. So, if you want to go to the best state fair, we should go to Minnesota in August. August for the Minnesota State Fair, where you can see uh, uh. the greatest butter sculpture you've ever seen that is far better than anything you could see in Iowa. Shots fired. All right. Well, I love that we're doing that while Liz can't respond on behalf of her. Well, she's, <laughs> she's a Minnesota, I'm just saying, uh, Iowa transplant. transplant. She, I believe she spent the early part of her life in Texas, then did some high school in Minnesota, and then has lived most of her adulthood in Iowa. But yes, I mean, I just want you to be preparing for our German trip to show me something in Germany that is as spectacular as the Spam Museum and the butter sculpture in Minnesota. It's just like, going to be butter sculptures. The stakes dude. are high. I mean, like... <laughs> it's true. Where, like where do you think y'all got it from? It's German, so yeah. probably this is where we got it's it. Like, yes, uh, exactly. it's like, am I going to die eating this? Like, eh, you know. It's like, uh, it's not good for you, but like, you know. Yeah. No, I think as part of this, we should do a seance with like my very stoic German-Swedish grandmother. I think she could really add something to this conversation. My most sort of... I'm, I think I'm at my most German when I like, have you ever like eaten just like bread with schmaltz on it? Absolutely. And it was fucking delicious. It's delicious. But you're like, you're like, I'm like literally just like sitting here, like putting cooked chicken dripping, fat, cooking chicken fat on my pork drippings. I think it is in, in German. Usually it's like, um, oh, really? I thought schmaltz was specifically chicken. 
I could be wrong. So. You would know better than Maybe I would. Not. Interesting. I'm, I'm sure they're different kinds, but the I thought that the classic one is okay. That okay, that actually tracks with what I'm thinking because the classical th- example I'm thinking of is like Jewish food, like latkes are supposed to be fried in chicken fat, and of course, Jewish people would not be frying in right. pork fat, so that makes sense. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. It is is spreading spreading schmaltz on your bread any weirder than spreading butter like i don't know i think that's just a choice we've made yeah maybe yeah yeah one feels way more culturally acceptable but anyway and who does that serve you know the question we always ask who does that serve exactly (laughs) we shouldn't get too far down the the culinary rabbit holes though uh uh, because like this was a delightful conversation and i think our listeners deserve as much time with those lens as they possibly can get and they should also spend more time tracking down the book and reading it. It's so good. That way you have maximized your Liz Lens exposure and it is worth every minute of it. I promise. My biggest endorsement of this book is it contains both research and gossip. You know, it will substantiate anecdotal truths with data and it will give you the gossipy behind the scenes of why a whole bunch of marriages, not just Liz's, ended. So I, that is a strong endorsement for yeah. me. All right. Thank you for tuning in again. We love meeting you here. And please enjoy our conversation with the magnificent Liz Lenz. Enjoy. So um, here we are. We're in the middle of the conversation already, and we decided we had to hit record. Um, Laura reminded us that we were not, in fact, recording. Yes. Well, Liz was just talking about having children as a child bride, and now they are old yes. enough to like do things for themselves. And I was relating so hard, I was going to vomit. So yes. I needed to record it. I mean, my kids are my kids are really similar ages to yours. They're now six, and they're almost six and almost ten. Like they can do their own shit, Liz. Like they can get up in yes. the morning and get their own little string cheese, and I don't have to get out of bed at that exact moment. And it's the reward I've been waiting for. I am going to those parties with two-year-olds, and none of them yes. are mine. Yes, I I have these very dear friends, and they have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and that's like the age spread of my kids. And like we'll go out to eat with them, and it's you know, of course, they're beautiful, wonderful, energetic children. And I have the sulky teen in the corner. Like my daughter's going to be thirteen in two months, and like I can just I can wake up, leave them home alone text them where I am, go for a run, run errands, come back, have like all that taken care of by like 9, 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And then they're just rolling out of bed. And I'm like, this is, this is it. I have arrived. And I love like teen parents that are like, yeah, but then they don't want anything to do with you. And I'm like, good. You mean they can fend for themselves? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm not ready for that. I, like, I, I have wiped their shit up off enough 
floors. Like, I'm happy to be ignored a little bit. Like, it's fine to me. Oh my God. I was actually just thinking of you because my co-parent and I were starting to talk about camp plans. Mm. And he was like, I think they're old enough that we don't have to plan something for like every day. And I was like, Liz told me on. Okay, no, no, no. Tell me, tell me, fill me in. I was like, I saw some updates from Liz on Twitter on this. Give me the, how did it go? So my kids were about your kids' age when 2020 happened. Yes. And we had the shutdowns and I don't live near family. And so for many, many years, I had this wonderful babysitter and she could not come to our house in 2020 for so many reasons. And then also she was student teaching that year too. So like, you know, we were not top priority. Her career was jerk. And and how dare you? Laura, and you know who you are, and we love you, and we would die for you. But like, I had nothing. But then I was like, oh, well, they're old enough now that I can do this. Mm -mm. Summer's a whole different ballgame. Give me all the wisdom. And like, I think if I mean, and God bless, children are so different. But like, if I had two of my older daughter, it would work. Yes. But I have an older daughter. And then I have my son who's just like, Will no one, will no one play with me? Will no one give me attention? And and he's so sweet. He just loves to be with buddies. But like, this is my second one too. Yep. yep, Yes, and he's just like he's like this little like tender, open heart of human need and kindness. And it's like, go play with Legos. (laughs) Like I can't. But you know he. So he needs somebody. So. I have like gotten a just like a team to come over okay. and play video games with him or something Perfect. just to like take the heat off. Yeah. But mm. um, you know, I'd say your mileage may vary, no. but don't get cocky. Like, don't get cocky. This is valuable live with me. <laughs> That's how you turn a book in like a year late, let me tell you. <laughs> Relatable. Again. Eight months, eight Relatable. months late. Yes, but yes. <laughs> Speaking of books, Liz, Elizabeth Baranowski. Okay, really important question. Yes. Do you think you're related to Christine Baranski? Because I think you probably are. Oh my God, I I am now. Uh, I have no evidence. Uh, you heard it here first. There's, there's Christine no. and Liz are Polish cousins somewhere back in the old country. We have to be. You know, there's a prison in New York, like called Baranowski Federal Penitentiary, or something oh. like that. And I feel like knowing my family, it's far more likely that we <laughs> did that. Like. So what you heard us say is that Christine Baranski is Liz's mom and they had nothing to do with the prison. That's what you heard on this podcast. Uh, she is my mother and I'm the least successful Nepo baby in America. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow as a Nepo baby, I ended up in Iowa and that's on me. That's on me. Could have been in girls, but no. Jack. Um, okay, so we are here to talk about this American ex-wife, how I ended my marriage and started my life. I have so many things to say about this book, but one of them, Liz, is that I feel a deep abiding and sincere grief that we could have been best friends in high school and weren't. <laughs> like we grew up like five minutes. You, you went to Eden Prairie High School. Did you not? I moved there in the middle of my junior year. Did you? What year was that? 
I graduated in 2001. Oh, my God. I graduated Edina High School in 2002. This is what I'm saying, well, Liz. We, we never would have met because Eden Prairie and Edina don't get along. And you're too stop, rich for my blood. Stop interrupting my fantasy. Everybody knows that. <laughs> stop interrupting my fantasy. We could have been friends and we weren't and we're going to fix it. We could have. I had friends who went to Edina, you know, because I went I to. family in Eden Prairie. I went to Wooddale Church. I have been to Wooddale Church and I know people oh. who go there. Yes. Yeah, see Liz this could have happened you know and like don't tell me that there are any like class connotations to Eden Prairie (laughs) we don't need to get (laughs) okay so this fucking book it's like watching watching Fargo I'm just watching like it is listen yes I know someone who was in Fargo we're talking about the sin cities we're talking about the yeah. Sin Cities. Okay, so you brought up Fargo, which is the Beetlejuice of the Midwest. And now I have to tell like the story of who I know from Fargo. So there is a man named Bane Belke, who is the artistic director of the Jungle Theater in Minneapolis, where I once had an internship, who was Mr. Mora in Fargo, which is to say he's the guy, he's shoveling his driveway. And I think it's Steve, one of the cops comes up and asks him questions. And he's like, oh, I was tending bar down at the Eklund and Swedland there. <laughs> And this kind of funny looking guy came in. (laughs) Anyway, that's who I know from Fargo. And now everybody knows. So we're in the Midwest with this book. Have you talked to anybody about this book, Liz? Like it hasn't come out yet. Like where are you in your publicity cycle? Um, so you know, this is my third book, and every publicity cycle has been so different. Well, you were in the middle of a derecho in the last one. You were like talking to us from a hotel yes. and like oh, yeah. emergency burgers sent in from your publisher. That's right. And so this time I feel like because pandemic fundamentally did change things, whether we like to admit it or not. I'm now kind of like at this point in the publicity cycle where I'm just starting to talk to people and the book comes out in less than a month. And, you know, so I was like last, even two weeks ago, I was like so stressed out. I was like, nobody cares about my book. And then last week I was like, oh, okay, I I think we'll be all right. But yeah, so I'm still really early in the publicity process. I've had a couple little interviews, but I mean, obviously this is going to be the best interview ever we're known for i mean yes correct i have already gone to my favorite branch of the san francisco public library indignantly held up this book and said order 100 copies it's going to be a bestseller so so shall it be (laughs) because do you know how many panacotta divorces there were liz like there were a couple you know i think this is gonna hit a chord i i mean i hope so i really believe in this book because i really believe that there is something happening in america that we are not talking about and i see the conservative right talking about it in a reactionary way, but I don't see that other side. And, you know, and so I know something is happening and I want women to stop feeling like it's their problem, like it's their individual failure. And, And that was the thing where I was going through my divorce, which I did, thank God, before lockdown happened, felt like this is a personal failing. This is a personal failing. But being a journalist, you know, right, and going out and talking to people, I'm like, no, 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 no. There is something going on here. And there is a fundamental failure in the way we have set up 
our society, our tax base, and it's not a personal failing. This is too much that we're putting on women. And then the pandemic happened, and then and then everything kind of came to a head. And then it felt too. And as I was like writing this book, I was like, yeah, we're gonna have this conversation. And then all of a sudden, everybody seemed to just like make it go away. You know, it was like, oh, women are mad, but that's it. They're mad, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be specific because writing a book is hard. But I do feel like a lot of literature came out from this time that was like, women are mad and we're just mad. And I guess we can't do anything about it. And it's like, oh no, no, no. You can burn your fucking life down is what you can do. And it's great. It's great. You should do it. It's yeah. awesome on the other side. And that's what we don't talk about. Just very briefly. I mean, it's it's also noticeable that like last year was in fact a better year for sort of like marriage is the solution to everything. And I reading your book, I like couldn't help but think like, I mean, first off, I never know what these people want. Like what's the, what's the prescription here? What's the policy prescription here? It's either creepy or ineffectual. I don't know. But like the end effect would be right. Like producing a bunch of what you describe you got out of, right? Like things that people should have maybe like taken a few more years to evaluate before they like codified it into, you know, law, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, and, and we're doing the opposite. We're like, Oh, people should rush more into this stuff, you know? And I think it flies in the face because this is not a new solution, right? Like this has been at like perennially anytime women make any sort of advancements, there's like all these people that are like, well, let's just get married, you know, like forget about it, ladies. And you know, the ERA backlash, right. um, you just like ever everything, but like, it doesn't work. And we know we can see the numbers, right? We can see that this doesn't work, that giving women uh, no reproductive rights, forcing them into marriages. And right now in America, it's easier for a 16 year old to get married than it is for a 41 year old woman to get divorced. So when we talk about like, oh, it's just so easy to get divorced, that is such a lie. But there is data, there is good data out there that says, If you want strong marriages, which I don't really care, but if you want that, if you want women to not get hit, abused, if you want women to have children, and if you want families not to be poor, you know what you do. You give women choices. You make divorce easy to access. And there are studies out there that say like in countries, they have like Spain was one of these studies where it was like, all of a sudden you went from like, really, really, really restrict divorce laws to like super liberal and kids stayed in school longer. Women had more money. They had more jobs. Marriages lasted longer and rates of domestic violence went down. So even if, you know, like, even if your goal is we got to strengthen the American family, then give women choices. And so that's why I know that's not the end goal. The end goal is not to strengthen American marriages. It's to continually oppress women because we don't want to fund a social safety net. We don't want to fund welfare because like you look at those policy solutions, it's like we got to strengthen American marriages so we can stop giving children free school lunch. You're like, 
the like what the hell is that and uh anyway so uh, clearly i feel very passionate about it but yes i mean just in ca- like just the handiest possible example of the legal codifications you're describing where i live in california there's no waiting period for marriage there's a six-month waiting period for divorce yes just to make sure you're sure I don't know. Like, this is one of the most liberal states in the union. It is relatively easy compared to other states to access no-fault divorce here. And still, six-month waiting period enforced and mandatory. Yeah. And in many, many states, all it takes for a 16-year-old to get married is an adult or a legal guardian to sign a piece of paper. Like, like if my mom could have signed my divorce decree, it would have been done you know wow wow hadn't even thought of that one and you know it's not like my mom's very pro-divorce but i was gonna say if that had been my position i don't know that would have been advantageous <laughs> to me i mean i should say on the record and i don't know how much i'm gonna say about this on the record i am in the middle of a fairly amicable divorce and my interest mm. in this book was extremely personal <laughs> and, and maybe i should disclose that i'm a you know that not only am I the only man in this Zoom, I'm also uh, not going through a divorce. So like, I might just have to sit this one out. I'm just going to, I'll shrink back um, and and listen. You were invited. You were invited. This is your podcast. (laughs) It's our podcast. (laughs) Yes, yes. I just, among the many examples of information you put into data and research that I have lived anecdotally, I am looking on page 242 for the class. Um, You're talking about the fear... I'm just going to read. I began this book talking about how the inequality of marriage crushed me, how the years of little labors piled up until I felt as if I was suffocating beneath them. When I divorced, I prepared for the exhausting life of single motherhood. I didn't think it would be better. In fact, I thought it would be harder. No man to help me around the house. No one to help me with the kids. I'd seen the depictions of harried single mothers and heard the pity in the voices of people who asked how I was managing all alone. What I discovered was the exact opposite. (laughs) Okay, I'm just fast forwarding. This isn't just anecdotal. According to research done by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, single mothers spend less time on housework and have more free time and sleep than their married counterparts. Can we shout it from the rooftops, Liz? Oh my god this is so true in my own life it's so it's and it's so shocking right like i genuinely shocking i i stayed in my marriage for so many years and god bless he was unhappy too right like sure he's remarried very happy like and it's great it's so great to see because it's not me and i just affirm these choices and and they make my family unit so happy but like like i stayed in that marriage for so long because in my mind i would say there's nothing better out there you cannot find anyone better that this is as good as you can do and i would just like to say too he's a good man right like a good earner not mean not cruel right like like we are very different people loves his kids you know committed to them yeah yes yes committed to them um an active father not always how it goes with men too like no yeah kids deserve some credit for that yes yes and so it's just like this is as good as it gets and what i realized and i was so miserable and i stayed for so long and i write about this in the book where it's just like i was just gonna break and i was looking at all these miserable marriages and i was like well 
you know, like if Shirley Jackson can be miserable, maybe I can be miserable. My friends are like, that's not the bar. Like you can't like, we don't, we do not want that life for you. And I was like, well, and then I got out and I realized, oh, oh, there is something better. There is something better. And that better is me. You know, and and I think like too, like even reading, I went and read a lot of like, you know, second wave feminist literature, because in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, I felt like this was like a resurrection of some of those ideas that I felt had been lost, or intentionally lost, you know, and I, I remember reading Nora Ephron talking about like this very sadly being like, oh, all these women left their husbands, and then they got out you know, to find something new. And it was like, you were just like, you know, buyers in a seller's market. And I kind of thought that that's what it was going to be like. And then I left and I was like, oh, the better thing is me that I have for so long thought that this is what a good life was, that it literally never occurred to me that a good life could be me and my happiness and my children or no children if you don't want them that is fine mm-hmm, too but mm-hmm. like that the bar is not the bar for your life should not be the least miserable heterosexual relationship yes. or any sort of romantic relationship that you've had the bar for your happiness should be your actual happiness and i think people do not know what that is no because we have normalized female unhappiness in this culture yes I have to tell you about the TikTok that ended my marriage. (laughs) I could probably find it, but I won't waste the time now. So as I was like in the twisting pit of despair of do I stay or do I go? I came across this TikTok by a couples therapist and I could tell within four words of her speaking that she lived in Minnesota. (laughs) Like I could just tell. And I looked it up and like eventually verified this. I wish I could remember her name. She said something like, I've been a couples therapist for however many years, 20 years, call it. I have seen the same dynamic over and over again. And she's like, I just have to speak about it because like people have to know. And she was like, I see this dynamic where a heterosexual couple comes into therapy and the woman is specifically displeased about a number of things. And we address those things. And maybe the man tries to correct one or two for a little while and the change doesn't last. And then she's she's raising the same issues over and over again. And she's like, so inevitably, this woman starts to get to the D word, divorce. And she's like, and then she brings up divorce. And she's like, and then the man is blindsided. And he's like, I couldn't have seen this coming. There was not a single warning sign. I am shocked. I am surprised. I am blindsided. And she concludes with the synthesis of like, basically men expect their wives to be unhappy. We have normalized female unhappiness to the degree that men can't see it. (laughs) So when a woman raises the same issues over and over again, he thinks she's just dissatisfied in the normal way. Mm. And this was it. Like, this was my earthquake moment. I was like, that's, that's it. And I think that your book speaks to that, that normal, like why that normalization happens too. Yes. And yes, this normalization of female misery is everywhere. And I spoke about it briefly with my frustration with, you know, a cycle of books about female rage coming out Mm -hmm. and like, and and it's just like, it never goes anywhere that yes, like all these women writers can write about their rage and their unhappiness and their suffocation and, 
but like in all these novels, but it doesn't break anything. Yes. It doesn't challenge any status quo. And at the end of the day, she's still married. Maybe she has her art show, maybe like whatever. But like, you just like, you can dress up your little misery. You can make a little TikTok about it, but don't you dare ever use it to change the system. And I think like there's a whole cottage industry of books, podcasts, TikToks designed to help women cope with the misery of marriage. And it's just like, just leave. Yeah. And, and I've I- I've become like queen dump him. Yeah, every time <laughs> yes. I see one of those, I'm just like, leave. Yeah. And somebody said to me, cause I've done a couple interviews now and somebody said in an interview to me, don't you think it's frivolous to leave for happiness? And I said- why do you think your happiness is frivolous? Like I, that just bummed me out real bad. I'm not even mad at that question. That makes me so sad that we live in a society that we will do, we will do cycles and news cycles. And we're in another one about, Oh, the men aren't happy. The men aren't happy. The men aren't happy, but a woman says I'm unhappy and I'm going to leave. And we're like, well, that's a silly reason to leave your marriage. Selfish and frivolous. Selfish, fast food, Mm. culture, marriage, blah, blah. You're treating it disposable. It's the shine clothing of marriage and you. And it's just like, do you know what it takes for a woman to leave? Like it is harder to leave than it is to stay. Fighting for your happiness is the hardest thing in the world. But Liz, why not just do the the male thing and and take out your unhappiness the healthy way? Voting for Donald Trump and (laughs) your workplace. Okay. uh, You want to get real. You want to get real. Why men don't leave is because even a bad marriage is still benefiting a man. Yeah. Of course. One thing that I wanted to point out, like, I mean, it comes through in the book, but I didn't notice you making it fully explicit. Part of, I think, why this misery seems to be socially expected is because what you described in the beginning is not having a partner in that sense. It's having another child. And like, of course, motherhood or parenthood in general, but really motherhood is the place where especially women are expected to just kind of like take on misery for the sake of it, right? Like, a lot of it is not fun. And like, and yet it's the most valuable thing I ever did. And it's true for a lot of people, but like, it's also the way this kind of stuff gets passed down. And I think it's really noticeable that right now, right, like American workplaces, like in their own imperfect ways are bumbling towards like, we found a vocabulary for like, well, this, this man doesn't seem to be doing his job. Like, you know, this is studied incompetence. We have all that stuff. But in our families, we don't have that because like essentially what what we have are other people's children right they're the yeah. children of 30 years ago like not like being like well wh- why would mommy ever leave me you know like how could she do this to me i thought we were having fun like well she was throw she was cleaning up your throw up <laughs> but like sure i'm sure she was having a blast right yeah. like so in some way our, i feel it's also our child rearing that's kind of biting us in the ass there right Oh, yeah. Well, the way we raise children is ridiculous. But that begins when we are expected to raise our male partners. You you know, uh, we witness this, I mean, as young girls. My mom's favorite line is he can be trained. Like, mm. it is very intergenerationally passed on. Oh, yes. and, and I still, you know, when I have these conversations with my writing, I, I will still get women who are like, well, you know, when I married my husband, he didn't do all these things, but I trained him and now we're so happy. And I'm like, did it take you 30 years, Deborah? And what could you? 
you have done with that time? <laughs> Cured cancer? Like, I just, and I just like, but that's not, but we value it. You know, it's like be miserable for 30 years so that one day in the future you'll retire and he'll wipe the counter. No fucking thank you. I want a better life. And yes. I do not want to throw myself onto that like burning pit. And you're right, Adrian, we make this misery so normalized. And one of the statistics that I found when I was researching the book that really drove this home, and it's kind of subtle, it's in the sex chapter, but it was like when like when couples are fighting men are less likely to go down mm. on their partners, yes. their female partners, but women still go down, give oral pleasure to their partners at the same rate. And I was just like, for some reason, that was the one that drove it home for me. It's like in times of stress and tension, women are still up here performing and men are not. And that's because the happiness isn't like, is it valued? And I like want to reframe this too, as, as a cis heterosexual man, why would you want to be in a marriage with someone who was so miserable? Like, why would you want that? Like, why would you want to come home every day to somebody who was so miserable? I mean, yeah, because they're still cleaning your house and cooking your food, but why have we- And apparently other things, yes. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and, yeah, it's still going down on you. Like, you're still having a good time, but it's like, but like, why have we so normalized female misery that men have built their lives on it and then expect it? And then, like, I would think that, you know, should I ever be long-term partnered again? let's hope not but like is like i would love my partner enough to be like hey you're miserable i'm making you miserable maybe this isn't good <laughs> like maybe this is not a good place but like you know men are just like oh i'm so blindsided it's like bitch she was miserable for like 15 years i'm thinking there's a lesson we can take from the queer community here adrian yes i'm, I'm remembering when danny and grace slavery got married they and they remember i remember them both writing about this on social media included in their wedding vows was like here are all the conditions on which under which we would yes. leave each other and would oh. leave this relationship yes. and i was like that's actually the most romantic thing i've fucking heard you've actually played yes. it out to the end you have really thought about like really what it means to want the best for this person and that is yes. so mature and beautiful and clear-eyed in a way that the american legal marriage is not Yes. And, and I think that idea of like queering the narrative is something I really wanted to do. And, you know, this is not to say like, go out and, you know, now if you are a cis woman, like start dating women or No, I want whatever. to queer your narrative, Liz. Like, <laughs> let's talk about that. <laughs> but like, I want us to think about relationship and partnership and community in a more like queer way. Like you can have yeah. a life that does not look like one man, one woman, a truck, a minivan and a live, laugh, love sign on your suburban house like there are you are so midwestern i love it <laughs> a lot of america's midwestern i somebody asked yeah. me to describe myself and i was like soccer mom simone de beauvoir <laughs> thank you thank you well played well played thank you yeah um, i gotta i gotta put those out there for a crowd that would appreciate it yeah <laughs> Thank you.
Adrian, what else are we going to... I want to let the man talk. I'm feeling generous. I know. I know. Jeez. <laughs> like, what's the what's man going to do? It also made me think, you know, when, when you said like, you know, you train a man for, or you train your spouse for X number of years. Yeah. The other thing, of course, that's that this always means is like, um, and I witnessed this a lot sort of in my parents' generation, right? Like this kind of studied incompetence, like in some way can get worse with age, meaning... Right, like oh, yeah. the friends that they sort of never made that you had to make for them, like that, right? Like you, you then spend what's left of your good years basically like compensating for the fact that like you basically organize the social life, right? Like there's really, it, it's quite the opposite. Like people may think, right, like the, the dishes might be taken care of or whatever, and like that's nice. But like there is a, there's a bigger kind of dependency that happens that I think can easily take care of your retirement years too when there are no more kids to be taken care of. You know, the number one segment that I'm seeing divorces just continue to go up and up. Like younger, younger people are choosing not to marry and actually divorce rates are staying pretty steady among younger Hmm. generations. But the, the segment of the population that is just seeing huge numbers of divorces they call them gray divorces. It's retired couples. It's our parents who got to the end thinking we finally, we get through all of this and finally we're going to be happy. And they're realizing they're not. And, and you're right. Like it's the studied incompetence. It's like the man who made no friends his whole life. And then, you know, I hear, you know, women joking like, oh, haha, I can't have, you know, Gary retire because like, then I'll have to put up with him all day. And it's like, Jesus, you know, like fucking Gary, fucking Gary. but it's also like, God damn, like you've been married to this person for so long. You don't even want to see him. Like I, go <laughs> like you got four years left to live. Go, go. Go on your Viking River cruise. Leave Gary at home. Cash Have out the retirement fun fund. Do it. Cash yes. out while you still can. And I think that that what you just observed, Adrian, is like a real and studied phenomenon, which is, again, why I wanted to write this book, because I wanted to say our misery is like structural, is like built structurally into our society. It is not an individual failure. Yeah. No. And this is why... I love how you explore the economic dimensions of both marriage and divorce, which are deeply impactful. And like, I'm looking now for the class on page 93, the culture that underpays women and puts them at a financial disadvantage is a culture that forces women into economic dependence and traps them in unhappy marriages. Like the wage gap exists because of patriarchy. Another symptom of patriarchal acculturation is that women don't talk about money with each other. And so I'm not, I'm being very, I'm not blaming women for that, but it is another factor in what keeps us trapped. And I am shocked by the number of married women. Like I have become the kind of woman who asked my married friends, do you have a get out fund? And I am shocked by the number of people who don't. (laughs) And it's like, I don't, I want your marriage to last forever. If that's what you want, things can change in a day. And I would never let a child of mine 
not have a get out fund. Speak Liz. I I think there was, so, you know, I was married for so long and I was doing a lot of writing then. And I remember writing, I worked for 11 relationships website and there was this like, at some point, you know, this is in the early 2000s. It's not even worth remembering, but there was like some sort of viral essay about having a get out fund. And I remember doing like a little blog post for our little website that was like, yeah, great. Every woman should have a get out fund. I believed it for other people because my idea of what a bad marriage was, you're getting cheated was on. Was not what you were in. Yeah, and, yeah. Or you're getting like physically hit. And I was just like, yeah, other people need that. But in context at the time, do you know what I was experiencing? I had no access to our joint money, which all of our money was joint money. I had a little account that he put. Which is another normalized condition of American yes. marriage to be in that situation. Yes. I was being shamed for my college debt because I didn't grow up in a family that had inherited wealth, right? So I was being put at a disadvantage because of my debt. And like, and then, you know, and then I had no access to our money. But that seemed so fine to me. And one of the things I really wanted to drive home with this book, which I don't know if it's like, if it's gonna work, but I wanted to drive home that's like, there are so many books about divorce that are just like, and then he, and then he slept with 47 other women and had a secret family or, you know, horrific abuse. And I do not want to downplay any of those of stories, yeah. but like that is, you can just leave because you're unhappy. Those are not the only conditions. Those are, are not the only conditions. And yeah. Yeah. that's not the bar. Like that is actually not the bar. That should not be, it shouldn't, you shouldn't. And I know, and I was doing this too. I was reading all this literature and all these stories and being like, well, my marriage isn't that bad. So I should stay. And what, and you know, like, and, and I hear women when you get divorced, as you know, women will come up to you and they'll be like, how did you know it was time to go? It's crazy. What What happened? happened? And they like come and I think they're really seeking, like, do I stay or do I go? And they want to hear your answer because they're going to judge. Am I, that bad as her right and and is it worth leaving because we we still don't prioritize our happiness enough but like what i wanted to say and what i will go to my grave saying is it is enough that you are unhappy it is enough that if you can't do the work you want to do even if your work is being a you know like an elementary school teacher which actually the greatest job and we need more of them but you know what I mean like but like it's just like your career is worth it like your happiness is worth it like you not going to bed crying every night is worth it and like it doesn't you don't have to wait for him to hit you or have a secret family like Charles Lindbergh you can just go sorry I love slipping in Charles Lindbergh there catch some strays as Why long not? as I'm alive. Why not? I Why say not? I say put him on put him on blast. I yeah. can't tell you, Liz, how many times I mean, this is like the part of the conversation where I have to quote Cheryl Strayed. It's like it's my religion. But uh the, the Dear Sugar issue 77, the truth that lives there, she answers three questions from women basically amounting to am I unhappy enough to deserve a divorce? And what she says is just what you said, wanting to leave is enough. <laughs> 
like but again yes in a culture where we serially teach women not to trust themselves why would they be able to access that or give it validity you know and think of the entire capitalist like like structure that is dependent on women's misery like because like we need to sell you goods because you're so miserable like there's like a whole like self-care genre of buying things and listen i love to buy things <laughs> i love to buy stuff but like no but women feeling shitty is like 30 percent of our gdp like you're right yeah yes yeah oh probably <laughs> probably more, more. Yeah. and like you think about like like married women are like the number one like consumers of literally everything like even like home repair stuff which is fascinating to me and um it's just like everything and and it's just like well what if you were like what if they were happy like you know like the candle industry would take you know (laughs) (laughs) cleaning products would be over oh my god well that's what i mean that's what you know betty Friedan writes about she's like and she was right i mean she's kind of off on a lot of things but like she was right about the cleaning she's like married women clean more than unmarried women it's not because their houses are dirtier it's because they need to justify their existence to a man yeah oh betty that's rough stuff that's rough stuff yeah as you do in your book i'm going to cite our colleague moira donegan the brilliant moira donegan whose new yorker piece about betty friedan was required reading for everybody and also found the really sad truth that like betty friedan was living in an abusive marriage (laughs) and i think that that colors a lot of the facts you were just citing in a really sad way Mm. too yeah female happiness so like here's the part that i really think our culture is not ready to talk about a happy mom is better for the kids. Yeah. Like it is better. It's not like equivalent. It's not just as bad. It's better. I have a better relationship with my kids than I did before. They see yes. me in a way that they couldn't see me before. Like having a happy mother matters to the health of the children. If we want to like go down the conservative argument route. And if we want to think about, you know, the next generation, I mean, because that's always what we're exhorted to do, right? When it comes to these things. Oh, but think of your children. Like, wh- what would divorce do for them? It's like, how good is it to model for your children that fully half of humanity is there to, like, clean up your shit? Like, I don't think that's that's not good for daughters. That's not good for, good for sons. That's not good for you know, non-binary children. It's like, just, it's it's just bad. That feels like such a toxic legacy to leave to them. And one that, like, might well pay off 30 years down the line and fuck up their marriages. So the reason we say divorce is bad for children is because poverty is bad for children. Exactly. And poverty so often is the net result of divorce because Because of American policy. Yep. Yes, because because that's why I wrote this book, because we do not fund SNAP benefits, because we don't have a strong social safety net, because women are criminally underpaid, because women give up their careers to raise children, but then find themselves trapped in abusive situations. And then when they have the audacity to save their own lives and their children's lives and get out and then they're thrown into poverty, we say... 
wow, that's so bad for your children. So like, oh yeah, was watching, yeah. you know? And it's just like, and when you look at like rates of domestic violence, it is, a, it's endemic in our culture. And, and it's just like, how can you say that staying is better? So what is bad for children is poverty and we can fix that. And because, yeah. But yeah, yeah, what's bad for children is poverty. So if we could just, so the solution then is, and there is a book coming around, out around the same time as my book that argues exactly the opposite of my book that basically says, stay married, get married. It's better for children. Everybody's going to be happier. It's like, well, first of all, like we ask people in happy marriages if they're happy and then they say happy. It's like, good job. You're not, that's not really a study, but congratulations. Happy people are always happy. Like ask single people, happy people, if they're happy, they're also happy. Shut up. But it's also like, but it's like, what, if you wanted to, if you wanted to create a society that was better for children, then you would create a better social safety net. And once again, we can look to other countries, we can look to these like studies and say, actually, when women have choices, kids stay in school longer, women make more money, outcomes are better. So once again, if we were really interested in better outcomes for children, then we would create a society that has strong social safety net and that gave women choices instead of forcing them into, you know, their little suburban live, laugh, love house where they're screaming to the walls because nobody cares about their misery. I mean, I looked at those studies a little bit about the single parent penalty, et cetera, et cetera. Like basically what they're saying is dual income is better for children, which like in this country with this social safety net, well, no fucking shit. Right. Like, yeah. In, In America, more money tends to be a net positive. Right. Right. Like, we could, as you say, we could work around that, like, absolutely, right? Or like, okay, so if more money is better and that more adults making more money is better. So like four people, like, well, let's do polycules yeah. or like, let's, why not, why not five moms? Like, why? Listen, the research on polycules for child outcomes is oh, really? fascinating and like very positive. Oh, of course it yeah, is. because more people caring about a child and putting resources into them, of course. Yes. Yeah, 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 of course. Like, it's just, and, and, and I will say, you know, I, I did live this and there's also some research that indicates that like women have like a five-year slump post-divorce where it's like you get back on your feet you're but then then you come out making more money I lived that you know like I came out you're living it right now living it right now it's great you're here for the victory lap yeah it's just like I came out I was broke you know like I had to have a secret bank account to set up my divorce fund I got money from friends. I did. I I was working all night. God bless Jezebel. I wrote marketing copy for them for crazy holiday, you know, like season earned enough money to get myself a lawyer. And, and then I came out and I was, which is not cheap, by the way, not not even in Iowa. Not even not even bit. in Iowa. And I came out and I was living off of credit cards. I had no money. It was scary. It was terrifying. I didn't know how to talk about it. And I did it. It's not like it's I didn't I didn't grow up in the depths of poverty, but I grew up very economically, you know, in out, in out, like boom bust, boom bust. And so it's not like I hadn't mm-hmm. experienced 
being broke before. You have a huge yeah. family. You have a huge. How many siblings? You can't do you have? have money when you have seven siblings. There's just no way. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. like even if you make three hundred thousand <laughs> right, right, dollars right. a year. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's just like, but so it's not like this was unfamiliar. And I would tell people, I was like, I've been broke before, but I've never been happy. That's the mantra. Yep. And and so, but like, so I know what it's like, and I know how scary it is, and I know what it's like to like cry on the empty floor of the house you're renting because you're just like oh my god if I just had like one other person maybe buying juice wouldn't be so stressful but you know I never once have I regretted it you know because there are so many more important things than money and that is my happiness and then I suddenly had all this time to do work that I wasn't able to do and then I was able to build up again like a career i could have a career that i couldn't have before you've published i mean i just have to like give you some flowers here like in that space that you were describing so beautifully you have published three accomplished <laughs> books that is not small like that's a big deal if you think about it i left my marriage in 2017 it was end of 2017 was when i moved out uh my marriage was finalized in 2018. My first book was published in 2019. 2020 was my second book. And now this is my third book. Yeah. And and I think in some ways, it's hard for me to really comprehend. That's why I'm taking a pause to give those... you your fucking flowers. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I there was also a detail in your book that I loved. I'm not going to quote this very well. You were talking about maybe it was when you were trying to get like repairs done on your new house or looking for a new house. There was some situation you were entering where you were going to have to make a lot of small talk and charm people. And you specified that you brought a copy of your first book with you, Godland. And I was like, that's that's a purple state woman who knows her audience. Bring in the God book. Not, not, not the childbirth book or the divorce book, the God book. Oh, <laughs> never the... Never the reproductive rights yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, never that one. But I, um, yeah, I did. Yes, I had to, to. The house that you see behind you was the house I and I and and I realized like buying a home is a fraught process and it should not be like that. So you true. know, it shouldn't. I shouldn't be able to you know, walk in, in my little sundress as a, you know, a white, thin white lady with my little book and be like, let me buy the house and then have them be like, her, you know, like that should not be well, the As process. I recall, you also mentioned in the book that it took the bank a while to approve your loan because you're a freelance oh, writer. Well, so I don't know that you were just bathed in like privilege in this right. process. No. <laughs> well, you know, but you gotta, you but know, it's good it's, to be detailed. Uh, yes. Yes, but like, but yes, and also I had to buy a car a, a couple years ago because the car I was driving just like literally broke on the hill up to the school, and I was like, I cannot, I can no longer drive this car. It is now destroyed. But yes, every time I've had to go into a banking situation as a single woman, and I mean, like, I, I make good money. I'm not you know, balls deep in debt, like I'm doing fine. Look at my tax returns. I got good. I've got great credit. But like every single time I've had to do this, it has been a nightmare. Huh. It has been an, in, in order to get the house, I had to, and I was doing this anyway, because I needed health care. But like I was applying for jobs. And even though I had like, you know, tax returns, 
that like from even when I was married that showed like I am earning a livable income. I have money for the down payment when I got cashed out of my house, you know, like I, I can do this. Just look at it. They were like, no, we need to know that you're employed. And it's like the job I took made me earn less money than really? I had the oh previous year freelancing because that's how poorly local journalism pays. It's pop. It, it literally, I looked this up once for a thing that I wrote. I was like, oh my God, I was earning poverty level wages. And I didn't even realize it at the time. Cause Welcome I had to, to being a professional that. writer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was supplementing it with books sure, and freelancing, sure. but like, you know, it was, it, yes. And even then in the first, banker was a guy who had gone to church with us when I was still going to this church and like so he knew me and yet even then it was still hard and so when I went to buy my car there was this like young finance guy and I knew it would be a problem and I literally and he was starting to give me like oh where are you employed blah 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 and I was like I'm a small business owner what's your job I am a small business owner well blah blah check my credit and because i was like i'll be goddamned if some little shithead named travis is the reason i can't buy this nissan rogue you know what i mean like no god no, damn it Jaden. i'm not taking this come on. Yeah. come on yes come on and it's just like i could be your mother like i am going to earn more than you will sir so just let me get this nissan and uh i so the first time i had been like really just like no I can do and then like and and I couldn't and they wouldn't give me the financing until I had a letter an offer of employment it was this whole thing and then and then when I went to buy the car I just I took a different tactic which was scary 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 woman and then I got the car like immediately nice tell me more about scary woman like who does how does scary woman behave (laughs) in a car buying scenario (laughs) I you know, I think the thing about um, being a single woman is you're already terrifying to people. Nice. And I think that like, if you're, if you're an outspoken single woman, whose income is not tied to the local economy, which is another thing, like people can't threaten my job anymore. And they used to right when I worked for it. That's another thing that happened since the last time I was on this podcast was I got then fired from that newspaper job due to political backlash to my columns, in part due to that. And and so that's another way we control women like, oh, you need this job. So stay in line or you'll lose it. But it's actually really not hard to be scary as a single woman because you just have to stand up for yourself. You just have to. Shocking. Um, <laughs> it stuns yeah, people in their tracks. Yeah. What 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 this scary woman is like is she just sits there and I look, I look people dead ass in the eye. Um, I do love to not laugh at their jokes. No, thank you. I get right down to business. I'll I'll stop doing those things that I've been socialized to do. Make people at ease. Make little jokes. Make funny little comments. Like, oh, do this small talk. I will not do that. Like, if I'm going to go into scary mode and they want to talk, I'll be like, no, I'm here for a business. We're doing this. I love this. This is what I, I need. Love this. What do you know? Yeah. And, and sometimes people will be like, oh, blah, blah. And I'll be like, what is it that you want from me? Nice. That is my favorite way of terrifying people. I'll just look at them. I'll be like, what is it that you want from me? Just tell me straight up so I can tell you yes or no, because I do not have time. Efficiency. 
Oh my god, yeah. Liz! When I went to buy a car as a single woman, they oh, tried no. me. I mean, oh my god! I will try to boil this down, but like the first dealership I went to, the car ran out of gas on the test drive, <laughs> and I remember asking like super basic questions of the salesperson, like, "How old are these tires?" And he was like, "I have no idea." Nice. <laughs> and then we get back to the like dealer. Out. right then we get back to the dealership and he's like so are we doing this <laughs> i was like no nobody then the second guy i was like a little wiser i was like i am driving this straight to my mechanic this is the biggest thing i've learned at least in the state of california you were entitled by law to have the car inspected by anyone you want so this is a great time to have a trusty mechanic you've been going to for 10 years which i did take it to him this guy the mechanic was like this is a junk bucket there's a dent here there's a gap here don't buy this car you know and so then the third the third car passed my mechanic inspection but what's depressing about this story is i prevailed but i literally could not buy a car without the intervention of a man like i didn't know how to inspect a car so i just had to sort of rotate rotate out who i was trusting with my vulnerability so it wasn't the person who was taking my money (laughs) That was the best my strategy could do, but I love my Prius now. You know, I did. I when I went to buy my car, I did a lot. I had my brother help me with a lot of research up front. And was I, it your you brother know, Caleb? Because like... as I was reading your book, I was like, if you are a Gentile in the Midwest, you have to have a brother named Caleb. Like that just felt very true to form. To That's me. so funny. I have a younger brother, Caleb, yes. um, but he he is my. I have three brothers, and he is my. Um, second youngest um but it was my brother zach who still lives in minneapolis another very christian midwestern name yes yes zachary and he uh yeah so he he's a car guy he really helped me and he was but he was also I, i got shout out to my brother because like he's just he says this to me so often and i think especially since and, he, and if you read the book, he's the he's the one who got me high in Colorado. Oh, like, I he love was him. My, yeah, yeah. He was my Virgil to the underworld, nice. and he was like, "You're also very stupid." <laughs> and uh, which is shout out to brothers, by the way. But like, he says this to me all the time. He's he's like, "Listen, like I am a dumbass, and if I can figure this out, he's like, you're ten times smarter than me. You tried ten times harder than That's me. He's a like, good you should try less. brother." And you know, he used to, he, for many years, he worked his way through college doing construction. He's now an engineer. And so, you know, especially with house projects, he's like, do you know the IQ of the men you are hiring to fix <laughs> your home? He's like, watch a YouTube video and do it yourself. And he's just like, get them out of your home, Liz. But with the car thing, he was like, here's what you got to do. Here's how you do it. He's like, just go in and do it. He's like, it, it's really just confidence. It is. But when I was buying the car, so I had done all this research. I knew exactly the car. Like I had it, done all the, you know, reading up about it. So I went in and I was really just going to test drive it. And then if it was, it was the right price because I was buying it in 2021 and it was a used car. And like, you couldn't buy used cars in 2021. Terrible. Yeah. And for some reason, because I live in a state, nobody wants to be in. (laughs) Like I had found this like car and my brother was like, he was like, don't even try to negotiate on that. Like, he's just like, here's like financing. Just just go do it. So I got in and God bless the sales fee He's this like older Midwestern dad, like not that much younger than my own father. And he was bewildered by me because I came in. I was like, this is a car I want to look at. This is what I need to know about it. Blah, 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 blah. And he had all the answers because he's a Midwestern dad. And then we drove it. 
and I like had some questions and then he we get out and he's just like you could just see he like was just like shell shocked and I was just like <laughs> okay I think I'm, I, I was like okay I'm gonna do this he was like and I know he did not know what else to say so I I'm not even holding this against him but he was like don't you want to talk to someone about nice. it and I was like, well, Kevin, if you want to talk to me for 10 more minutes about it, I can. But I was like, I think I know my own mind. And you just send me over to financing. And he was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> like, he was just like, and I was just like, all right, let me send me Julia over to Roberts, you know, financing. Uh, like, yeah. yeah, remember yeah. me? Yeah. Big, Big mistake. mistake. Big. Big mistake. No, he sold it to oh, me. Yeah, they yeah. didn't bust. I, I mean, besides the Travis and right, financing, right. who which was also not his yeah, real yeah. name. I'm just giving these people fake Everybody's names. Everybody's Travis like, in Iowa. Everyone is Travis <laughs> in Iowa. That is true. Uh, but like, yeah, he was just, I just remember him being like, don't you want to talk to someone? It's just like, well, buddy, you can talk to me all day. I'm done talking, want, Justin. Like, Give me a car. <laughs> yeah, maybe on. maybe it's the fact that I like have been having cars on my brain, but like the car, especially in and it's in a relationship with the American family and yes. with American divorce, seems to me so yes. key. The freedom it affords, but also the way it can become a, a way to be tied down, right? Because like the minivan sort of becomes your tether to all these suburban locations that are all about like kind of getting from point A to point B and, you know, really, yes. uh, you know, sort of tie you up in such a way that you can't do Dude, work yes. and do and, and, and do a normal yes. job, et cetera, et cetera. And someone has to show up at 1030 to this thing where like any normal person will be at their workplace and has to like earn, you know, dollar bills and you're expected to be there. And it's like in the middle of nowhere. And like, you know, mm. the kids aren't allowed to walk home by themselves or it's dangerous or, you know, or even illegal, depending on the state, you know, and like the car like has this really demonic influence. Like, I wonder like whether this would have been easier if you'd been in, you know, Minneapolis. A city. You know? Yeah. Nothing is ever easy in Minneapolis. Oh, okay. hey. I've not, I have not Take been, it from one, know. from yeah. two who know. I have never been. You would do great in Minneapolis, I maintain. You you do well with German foods, you know? I, you know, I didn't, I did not have my driver's license for the longest time. Oh. And I didn't, I didn't get it until my now ex-mother-in-law taught me how to drive before we got married oh. because just like growing up in a big family chaotic nobody taught me how to drive and nobody wanted to and I was like begging for it I was just this whole process and then it was just like no money for cars and I had to go to high school at Eden Prairie High School with no car and that's that rough. is like I'm here to tell the listenership that's a rough place to be in. that's yeah. like the the kids were driving BMWs like the Maseratis. teachers were yeah. driving yeah. Hondas you know yes. and then and then like and nobody understood and I couldn't go anywhere I couldn't do anything you can only bum rides for so long especially like yeah. If if these kids were poorer, I could have gotten rights anywhere because people would understand what it's like to not have a car. But every single one of those kids, and and I still talk to some of them today, still love them, but like they would look me dead ass in the eyes and be like, well, why don't you just ask your parents for a car? It doesn't occur to them. Like yeah. it literally yeah. has never occurred to them wow. that a family could not. And so my senior year especially was miserable because I couldn't go anywhere. I had no car. And then I, I went to I went to this like rural college in St. Peter, Minnesota, and I had no car. Where did you go, by the way? I was trying. I was like, it's good. Girl, it's on Wikipedia. Yeah, it's Gustavus. Yeah. 
of course. I was like Christian College in Southern Minnesota. I think Luther it's the same. It. We need, Luther yeah, yeah. We need Ooh. to play the name game at some point. But keep yeah, talking. Yeah, and so, but like, yeah, you're talking about cars. And then when we, and then when we got married, I had like, I find, I got my driver's license, and we were going to move to Iowa, and I had like saved up all this money for a car. But then I was like, I had to use it for the wedding because my parents didn't have money all this kind of stuff and it was a real big income gap between our two families and instead of negotiating that income gap i said i will take all the money that i have and put oh, it the details of your diying your wedding were were miserable very, yeah. very illuminating yeah. yeah and so like yeah so when you talk about like like what you can have and what you can't have with a car but also the way it traps you. And Adrian, I just love that you brought that up because like I have child in sports now. And so I am a Midwestern. And you live in an area where you can't get around without yes. a car. Like there's no alternative there's no, and, and, and I just was like, I was talking to another sports mom who was talking about, she has a daughter in competitive gymnastics. She has a daughter in competitive swim. And they're like here, there, there. And I, in my mind, I was like, how can you have a job? Yeah. And I was telling her, I was like, well, I got to miss this meet because like, I got to travel for my book that's coming out. And she was like, oh, right. You're the writer, mom. You're the, you're that writer, right. mom. And I was like, oh, it's weird getting around. But I was like, <laughs> but I was just, she's like, I read your Wikipedia. Did you go to Gustavus? Yeah. It's, just, it's weird that you would have a career then and you're not a stay-at-home yeah. mom to a finance girl. That you're not, that you're not taking uh, wine swigs out of a thermal uh, in your car right. in, the, in the Kroger's not, parking lot or something like that while I'm not pouring vodka into my Stanley yeah, yeah. while like trying to get people involved into an MLM <laughs> listen there but the grace of God there but the grace of God go I like that's why I don't open Facebook it's all this is hey, I mean, friends you, doing MLM look listen, if you have enough people downstream from you it's a it's a fantastic way to make money uh, I in fact <laughs> I have a, okay. no I actually think I would have been really 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 good at an MLM oh, and I, I would have bought I would buy vitamins from you so fast I'm like wait you. was this a scam Listen, guys yeah. I just want to tell you about this tea I've been drinking guys, it's been doing amazing things I just for my want you to belly. know yeah. I still get that women still try to get me like to like sell because they'd be like you'd be so good at it and you I'm like, would yes, be so oh, good yeah. at it yes you. thank you for not I using your genius it. for evil that would have been yeah <laughs> We'd all be like, why, well, do, why the fuck do we have like this garage full of Liz's stuff? Two <laughs> generations ago, you absolutely would have been driving the pink Mercedes for like Avon Listen, or Mary Kay. Absolutely. Now, now I'm just using my power to get women to leave their marriages. Exactly. So that's what that's that my is, shill right that is now. The, that is the Lord's work. <laughs> it truly that is. <laughs> okay, so I just want to remind the listeners, the book is This American Ex-Wife. The author is Liz Lenz. She lives in Iowa. She is still surviving living in Iowa. We love her for it. Everybody should read yes. this book. I think I'm gonna, it's going to be my like new engagement present. Um, and <laughs> nice. I'm probably going to be putting on a syllabus for undergrads. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Thank you, Liz. Please come to the Bay thank Area you. for a book tour. So yes, we can please do. You. Uh, yes, I'm going to be emailing. Uh, you know what, Laura? I'm going to email you offline about that. And yes, the name is Liz Lenz. The book is This American Ex-Wife. The MLM is Ending the Patriarchy. So nice. uh, join us up. Join up. Five dollars a month. Get in, get in at the ground level. At this point, you can still get in at the ground level. Build yeah. your downline before, before it gets cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the more women that you can get to get divorced, uh, listen, I'll, get, I'll send you a shirt. Honestly, so. this idea has legs, nice. and I'm getting excited about it. <laughs> 
Thank you. Wonderful. Guys. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Go team. Thank you.